I have a number of reasons why I think it has taken me so long to truly begin questioning my belief system. I hope to journal about all of them, and if I'm going to do so, this is definitely the item at the top of my list. I vehemently fear disappointing anyone. There is a particular brokenness in me from different events in my life that makes disappointing anyone I love or who loves me emotionally intolerable. I fully realize this is detrimental to my well-being and has a tendency to leave me open to various forms of abuses. I have spent a good portion of my life learning how to work around this bump in my psyche, and most of the workarounds come in the form of over-communicating with the people in my life. When you make communication a core tenet of all your primary relationships, it is both easier to discern a person's true motives, as well as keep your own motives in check. It allows two people to share their full context with one another and evaluate why certain interpersonal decisions are made, irrespective of whether or not those decisions yield good or bad results. In my experience, these open lines of communication create very healthy and long-lasting relationships capable of withstanding all manner of ups and downs. If one person accidentally hurts the other, both can communicate freely from within a mutual bond of trust. Even if the perceived transgression cannot be fully rectified, that transgression can, at the very least, be quickly mended. This, in turn, gives any hurt feelings very little chance to fester into something more sinister or long-lasting. I have found this methodology indispensable for dealing with people in my life. Unfortunately, this same method falls hopelessly short when applied to the one relationship where it should shine the brightest. God, specifically the God I have served up to this point in my life, simply does not participate in meaningful dialogue. There is, in fact, no meaningful dialogue. And, what is more, no route to meaningful dialogue. God is silent. Prayer is touted as the primary form of communication with this God, but it is difficult to truly consider this bidirectional as responses do not come in the form of tangible sensory input. Instead, Prayer relies heavily on indirect forms of responses, such as stirrings of the soul, or deeper understandings of sacred texts. These two statements in particular do a masterful job of illustrating the main problems I have with prayer and why I consider it the antithesis of good communication. First, I have learned to distrust stirrings of the soul, both from being a semi-trained psychologist and from working in churches. I have seen how perfected the process has become for creating these stirrings. Specific liturgy practices, music, lighting, word choices, and service orders are carefully stacked with the intent of drastically increasing the likelihood of having an emotional rush which will, in turn, naturally be interpreted as a religious experience. Indeed, if I look back on almost every direct experience I consider myself to have had with God, it has been in the midst of one of these carefully crafted events. I have, in all honesty, had very few God experiences, if any, outside of these events. Over the years, this fact has begun to color my memory of these experiences as suspect. I could have very possibly attended any speaking engagement or rock concert and been handed potentially the same experiences 
even if the headliner of said event intended no religious experience whatsoever. The emotional response would have nonetheless been identical. The rush of endorphins would have been the same. The communal emotion of a shared group experience would have been no different. In light of that fact, it becomes harder and harder not to recognize that I'm simply experiencing what the planners of a church service want me to experience. It is a forced perspective honed over hundreds of years. It's a manufacturing of God. A moment where we employ carefully crafted techniques so we can recreate the voice of God. Yet God himself is still silent. Second comes the deeper understanding of sacred texts as a form of communication. These sacred texts are put forth by religion as the only accepted media that can be directly attributed to God. My only approved link to God and his words, therefore, are a politically curated collection of stories written nearly two millennia ago. Try as I might to feel differently, and I have tried. These stories read to me exactly like they were indeed written nearly two millennia ago. They do not, and cannot, take into account the progress human society has made since their inception. Even the stories that still have relevance serve merely as wisdom and guidelines that can be incorporated into modern life should one choose to do so. But it cannot be said that they constitute meaningful personal dialogue. If we try to pass them off as such, we are either admitting that a personal God is knowingly saying the same impersonal things to anyone who comes along, or we are admitting he is being so purposefully vague that interpretation is necessary in order to translate his words into our lives. Either way, that does not resonate like any normal discourse I have had in my life. Instead, it paints God as a writer with nothing new to say since no updates to his writings have been given within the last two millennia. Again, God has gone silent. Given all this, I am left with a relationship that is touted as more important than any other while also feeling more unbalanced than any other. I have no other option than to glean the will of my Creator from my own shifting sands of potentially manipulated emotions or the words of a silent author whose singular work was born from an entirely different culture completely alien to my own. Neither of these, in my estimation, constitute a justifiable basis for meaningful conversation, much less a meaningful relationship. This is especially true when discussing a relationship in which one party is asking to be worshipped and the other party is classified as a worshipper. Relationship, by definition, necessarily entails two individuals engaged in a true, balanced, and equal dialogue. But prayer, or any communication with God, feels more like one individual hopelessly making up responses while the other is predominantly absent or, at the very least, silent. That might sound a bit cynical, but it is a faithful depiction of what I have experienced in my life. Have I attempted prayerful dialogue with God? Yes, I have done so fervently for over 30 years. Have I had moments where I have felt God was speaking to me? Yes, but I can count those events on one hand. And even in those few times, I cannot be sure if it was God in the first place. Was it him? Was it the carefully crafted environment? Was it me telling myself it was God in order to justify the tenets of the religion? Or was it just my own mind working through a particular issue? In any case, 
Despite my best efforts, I feel I have no contiguous, undeniable examples of direct communication with God and 30 years of relationship with Him. And that leaves me holding a chain, with too many weak links to survive. I can describe the chain in this manner. I fear disappointing the people I love. I love God and therefore fear disappointing Him. God, however, has been silent, and so I can never truly know if I'm disappointing God. For the coup de gras, an angry, disappointed God comes with a laundry list of very detrimental effects, most notably eternal damnation. That is the big one. Hell. Eternal damnation. The moment where you stand before your Creator and He is displeased. At that moment, you have no more time to get better, or change your mind, or discuss what went wrong. It is the ultimate rigged game where the host gives you a vague set of outdated rules and you are only given the solution to the puzzle when you die. In that moment, you learn the answer to the greatest human question and all you can do is check your lottery ticket to see if the numbers you played match the cosmic board in front of you. Is Christ the final answer? Yahweh? Muhammad? Buddha? Vishnu? Something else? Based off of your choice and its match to the final answer, eternity is yours, for better or for potentially much worse depending upon how poorly you chose. Specifically from a Christian perspective, you could spend your entire time on earth honestly and earnestly doubting or even disbelieving that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior while, at the same time, giving all your time, money, and resources to the highest callings of humanity. Despite these best efforts, your options are still limited. You can, at worst, be explicitly sent to hell simply for your disbelief, or, at best, stand before the judge while flipping a coin, hoping it will all work out. What reality has this created for me? I have lived in constant fear of a silent God who can, at any time, make an absolute determination about the state of my soul for the rest of eternity. No parole. No rehabilitation, no about-face, no room for doubt, no room for exploration, no room for the most basic tenets of the scientific method where something this monumental would require and demand some form of non-faith-based proof. And most importantly, no forewarning or discussion of the grievousness of the error that caused the eternal sentence to be handed down until it is far too late. I have lived with this fear for over 30 years and it has left me beaten down emotionally to where I feel I have nothing left to give. As I have never been beaten down in this way by anyone who has proven to truly care for me, I am left with only a few painful conclusions. 1. This God I have served does not love me. 2. This God I have served does love me, but the love is thoroughly conditional or three, this God I have served simply does not exist and is a fabrication perpetuated by religion. The second conclusion most closely represents my life up to this point. The God I have served loves me, but it is a highly conditional love that is dependent upon utter servitude, complete abandonment of any self I possess, and zero expectation of anything in return that I would consider relational. At best, the relationship can be described as a fair-weather friend, helping when it suits, but only if it causes no inconveniences. 
at worst, is that of a dictatorial abuser, caring nothing about the relationship except what praise they can receive in return. I have been willing to accept this type of abusive relationship strictly due to the extreme fear of being sent to hell. But truthfully, my love for this God is only lip service given under the guise of Pascal's wager. It is a lie, and I cannot imagine that an omnipotent deity could not detect such a thinly veiled false emotion. And since that lie is so easily detectable, even to myself, it stands to reason that it is technically no different than unbelief. Which leads me to the third conclusion. It is the hardest conclusion to accept, but more and more it's the only conclusion I can see that makes any sense. This God I have served simply does not exist. This God appears and acts as if he is human, and that's because he is human, or, more importantly, merely a human construct. He has emotions. He has mood swings. He has great periods in his life and bad periods. He changes over the years and begins to respond differently to those around him. He makes decisions and then amends those decisions at a later point. He can be moved to action or inaction by those with whom he has a relationship. He can be loving and gentle in one moment and cold and callous the next. He is the best of us. And, more importantly, he's the worst of us. Were he to be a normal person, I would simply dismiss him and say I never want to be in a relationship with such a Jekyll Hyde personality. But he is not a normal person. He is God. That has forced me into a relationship with him because in my mind, there simply was no alternative. He shall have no other gods before him, and I believed that. I cherished that. I worshipped him freely. I subjugated myself to him. And all the while, I never even considered another potential truth. That he, or the religion who made him, was the abuser, and I was the abused. It may sound strange to consider a relationship with God abusive, but I struggle to find any other word to describe what I have felt and experienced. The weaker member has no relational alternatives, while the dominant member can move freely between relationships. The dominant member has ultimate power, while the weaker member has none. The demands of the dominant member are complete and all-encompassing, while the weaker member can demand nothing and must ask for everything. Everything good is attributed to the dominant member, while everything bad is attributed to the weaker member. The dominant member is always right, while the weaker member is always wrong. The dominant member has full freedom, while the weaker member has only the freedoms that are allowed. The dominant member expects love and adoration, while the weaker member can only give love and must expect potentially nothing in return. The weaker member is punished if they do something displeasing, while the dominant member is never punished and is beyond reproach in all situations. The dominant member can choose to answer or ignore the pleas of the weaker member, while the weaker member must blindly accept and or justify any response from the dominant member, irrespective of whether or not that response is helpful or harmful. These scenarios are all abusive, but are they describing a bad marriage or religious indoctrination? The answer to both is yes. This 
is what being in a relationship with the God I have served has felt like all my life, almost every day. To bring this point to its final end, this God can decide at any moment to take my life and send me to hell if he chooses to do so, and I would have no capacity to appeal that decision. That is where my fear originates, and that is why I must end the relationship. Like anyone in an abusive relationship, I have gone through the rigors of justification, denial, making excuses for my abuser, and internal suppression of my own needs. Like any abused person trying to take back control of their life, I have, over time, slowly seen my abuser for what he truly is. I have reduced my abuser from having godlike power over my life to something more human, more manageable. Like every abused individual who succeeds in freeing themselves, I have forced my need for my abuser to get smaller and smaller in my mind until I now stand on the precipice of watching my abuser simply disappear into the background noise of life. Finally, like anyone who has survived abuse, I vacillate between feeling freedom, a strong desire to run back to the abuser, and debilitating grief from a loss which really is not a loss at all. Yes, I now recognize this God for what he is, an utterly human construct whose presence has left me more broken than I should be. But even though I now see where this brokenness originates, I do not know if I will ever truly be free of my current version of God. He might just be too deeply ingrained in my psyche. I do not, however, blame him or myself any more than I would blame members of any other broken relationship. It took two to make the relationship. It took two to break the relationship. Perhaps in this case there was only ever one person imagining the other, but that doesn't matter. Perhaps the true perpetrator is not God, but religion. But again, that does not matter when it comes to how I feel. The other person, the relationship between us, was very real to me. Real to my core in a way that nothing else has ever been. I do not know what will take this God's place. Perhaps a better God? Perhaps no God? At this point, I honestly do not care. This journey is more about becoming whole than replacing God. For now, I will just be thankful to commit these words to paper and go to bed tonight, knowing that I will have chosen to carry one less weight. I will have one less nightmare about hell. I will be subject to one less broken relationship. Today I have taken one small step toward freedom, and that step, for now, is enough.